grave danger. Is there another kind? You see, the useful idiots that the Soviet Union, that Lenin put into America, are now the useful idiots from the Chinese. U.S. President Joe Biden, who has had another week of gaffes, confused moments. Uh, uh, They're coming down on America like Pac-Man, eating us up alive. Uh, uh, They're acting more as propagandists. Also, the science has changed. You know the Pac-Man game? Think of a Pac-Man game out of control. Sucking away at the foundation of America. If Russia pursues its aggression, it will face the massive consequences that... Because if they don't want you to believe something and they can cast doubt... We have no intention of fighting Russia. Sometimes confusion can actually be the goal. The goal. The goal. And as we've said all along... Confusion can actually be the goal. Welcome to the Monday edition of Speaking Out America... JR with you here. It's good to be back. We have a pretty good show. We've got a lot to cover in this hour of excellent broadcasting, including we'll go over the weekend with the speech with uh, Trump in Waco. We've got some good sound bites there. Also, uh, uh, VP Kamala Harris will be by to tell us how excited she is to be in Africa this week. Also, a great article that I read that has to do, finally, somebody, somebody has common sense. And our, uh, an actual climate scientist wrote a great article about how we can solve climate change. And it's pretty interesting. And I, and I wrote, when I read it, there was a smile across my face. And I said, my goodness, somebody finally gets it. Somebody finally understands what's going on here. <clears throat> And I think, uh, in fact, I, I might put it on my website. In fact, I'm going to put it on my website so that other people can also share it with others. Because if we don't push back against the false narrative, then how can we expect people to even begin the, the idea of critical thinking? You don't realize it, really, seriously. If you're talking to somebody who, um, you know, let's say that they they've bought it hook, line, and sinker, about climate crisis and everything that goes with it. But they, they're they only used to hearing other people agreeing with it. They're only used to their friends and their fellow associates. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all about saving the planet. Everybody is all about saving the planet. And then every once in a while you run into somebody and they're not interested in saving the planet because they don't think that the planet is in peril. And at first you look at them and you think, oh, he's a real idiot. No, oh boy, what a denier. They you have a name for it. It's a way that you can cast aspersions on somebody. <clears throat> and again, it's again, it's like no critical thinking, right? But um, but eventually, if you say something that actually rings true, that little truth gets in their head, and then they start to examine other. Uh, you know, theories about it and go, you know, that kind of doesn't make sense. And what he was saying does make sense. So you kind of have to try to plant the, the seed of doubt for people who have bought into the lie. And we talk a lot about that here. You know, the governor of Kentucky has bought into the lie. Over the weekend, there was a report. And this is happening across the country. You've got more and more people that are realizing what this trans ideology is all about. And so you have governors and civic leaders who are saying enough is enough. Because over in Europe, they're saying no to trans trans uh, surgery for children. UK, Sweden, Finland, some of the more progressive European nations that were body, buying into this have realized that it does more harm to good than good to our kids. 
But we in America, we like to celebrate diversity and inclusivity and uh, all those other things that we like. We, in fact, we would like to just celebrate all the time if we could. Every day is a celebration for Americans because, you know, we're, we're just such a, uh, a delightful people. And we really like to, to just celebrate everybody. You, you should have your own day. I should have my own day. We should all celebrate our day, shouldn't we? Because that's what Americans are all about, celebrating all the time. Because, my goodness, we've been depressed and oppressed, and um, I think you get my point. A little while, we're going to talk to a guy by the name of Charles Faint, who's a lieutenant colonel. And he is involved in a very important project, which I think its time has come, and it's called Battlefield. And it's so interesting that I get to in, in interview this man today. He's done incredible service to the country, and we'll go over all that. But I had just happened, I had a couple of hours this weekend where I literally had nothing I wanted to do. Everything that I wanted to get done with, I got done with. And I happened to catch on Showtime uh, letters from Iwo Jima. And I'd never seen that movie, and I had not seen Flags of Our Fathers. And the interesting trivia about that is that it was intended where both of those movies were going to be one movie. Now, I didn't sit through the whole Flags of My Father, which happened to come out after it, but I did sit through Iwo Jima. And it was so interesting. I, I had no, I mean, I kind of knew what it was about. But the uh, listening, it was all in subtitles, and it was all the letters, stories taken from the letters that were written while the soldiers for Japan were stationed on Iwo Jima, anticipating the fight of the Americans who were about to come. And it was during the early beginnings of World War II. And so you hear the stories, and you hear you get a picture of their life and what their life is like. And they know they're going to get decimated. They know that there is no victory that is going to emerge from this. And so it's, it's, a, it's and it, Clint Eastwood does it better than anybody, really. I mean, he, he is such a great master storyteller. And so during the course of the movie, you are getting to know the different characters and why they react. And, and, and you know, obviously not being on the front lines, I can't imagine what that would be. But imagine if you were stationed on an island and you knew you were going to get your ass kicked. You knew there was not going to be an exit plan. You had to stay. You had to fight. And you're basically held up in caves until the American soldiers come. And uh, there's some great rewrite uh, post uh, narratives about it, but it's a great movie. And it got me to think about the futility of war. And it got me to think about all the wars of the past, most recent past, where we put American soldiers and the soldiers of other countries in harm's way, sometimes for good purposes, sometimes, and mostly it seems like, for not good purposes. Like today, as much as I, I understand that there's a real fight and that the Ukrainians did not bring this upon themselves, that they are faced up against a bully nation like Putin. Uh, and that's about as far as I want to go with that narrative. The other part of that narrative is I do believe that there are provocateurs. There's money to be made in war. There always have been. 
and I wouldn't put it beyond our commander-in-chief where he sees a real political opportunity for starting and maintaining this war. Uh, and it's to the demise of the Ukrainian people if that is true. Uh, it, if, if it is true that the motivation behind this is as cheap and sordid and vacuous as I think it is, then Americans, uh, they're going to have to reconcile this. Because if we are the provocateurs involved in this, and we are provoking Putin, and we provoked Putin into coming into Ukraine because we were challenging him by bringing Ukraine into NATO, hence bringing it into the fold of the Europe, the Western European nations, then that posed a direct threat. Maybe we don't see it that way, but if suddenly, all of a sudden, the communists took over Mexico, I think we might have a different picture. <clears throat> and we would do what we could to make sure that that integrity remained because as I understand it, I think Ukrainians are more Russian than they are European, in, at least in heritage and in culture. And so the better method, in my opinion, is that we should have negotiated a settlement in the beginning. Go in, figure out what's going on, figure out where we agree, and don't allow the bloodshed to escalate. And we didn't do that. And we don't do that. <clears throat> And this thing started uh, in Crimea, by the way. Let's not forget that it started under another previous administration who did nothing when it happened, by the way, or did very little. So I, I just am looking forward to my conversation with Charles Faint. Uh, again, he served our country and he's involved in a pro project called Battlefield, which is not unsimilar to what the letters from Iwo Jima were about. And boy, here's a little surprise of the day. Uh, we'll get to Trump a little bit later in his speech. I've got some highlights coming up uh, from that, and, and that'll be coming up shortly. We'll have some clips and responses. And uh, and then, of course, the other big news, the, the news that's sort of whimpering away from last week is the indictment isn't going to come for Trump. And there's been some interesting feedback from all kinds of different people, including the former governor of New York. Listen to this. I think it's all politics. And I think that's what the people of this country are saying. And it just feeds that anger and that cynicism and the partisanship. Hi, it's a coincidence that Bragg goes after Trump and Tish James goes after Trump and Georgia goes after Trump. That's all a coincidence. And I think it feeds the cynicism. And that's the cancer in our body politic right now. That is so off, off the note that he would say that, that you would get that kind of response from a Democrat like that who is an institutional, multi-generational Democrat. And uh, he is saying, he is speaking truth to power. Uh, I know a lot of people on the left don't want to believe that this potential indictment is more than politically motivated. I know that's true. You know it's true. Uh, don't pretend that you don't. And, and you better remember that the pendulum swings both ways. We're coming after your guy next. And you don't think that Biden has a few things under his uh, bed, a few skeletons in his closet? Uh, to be continued on that one, right? All right, coming up in a little bit, we are going to interview a man who has seen it. He's been there. He's looked at the face of war uh, almost shoulder to shoulder. And he is going to tell his story and also what they're doing now, which I think is just a, a fabulous idea for our nation's veterans. We'll continue. You're listening to Speaking Out, America.
I am very honored to have on the program here, Speaking Out America, and uh, Dr., uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Faint has served this country for 27 years. So he's got a story to tell, but it's, it's, it's not only his story, it's also the story of countless of other veterans who have all kinds of experiences that they draw from. And in many of their stories, as I was mentioning, Lieutenant Colonel, before you came on, I got an opportunity to see the uh, movie Letters from Iwo Jima, which was a very successful movie. And, you know, it was about that very thing, you know, the, a collection of stories brought to life explaining the perspectives of, of the soldiers who had to, you know, fight the Americans that day. So a very good movie. I don't know if it plays well into what we're talking to, but I kind of think it does. But let me let me share, everybody, who you are and a little bit about your background. You served 27 years as an officer in the U.S. Army, and during that time, you had seven combat tours in Afghanistan and Iraq while assigned to the 5th Special Forces Group and Joint Special Operations Command. You also hold an MA in International Affairs from Yale and in retirement serving as the chair of the Study for Special Operations of the Modern War Institute at West Point, which is pretty impressive. It's beyond impressive. Um, so we want to talk about this, this thing, this concept called Battlefields, stories written by military veterans and first responders. And you are in partnership with one of the most respected news newspapers, news agencies I, I can think of, the Epoch Times. So tell us how that relationship came about. What was the impetus of this, this great concept? And what is it that you hope to achieve by it? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you for that very kind introduction. And thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to be here. So the Epoch Times has partnered with the company that I own, I run a blog called the Havoc Journal. It's Havoc with a K, H-A-V-O-K, Havoc Journal. And we sought to be the voice of the veteran community. And we take an expansive view of that to include first responders like police officers, firefighters, EMTs, because we're largely part of the same family. We have a saying in the special operations community and the veteran community in general, same mud, same blood. So people who shared the same terrain with us, the same mission with us, we consider our brothers and sisters. And We've had Havoc Journal's been in existence since 2013. It started with a by a good friend of mine named Marty Scovelin, who's a former Army, Army Ranger, is now over at Task and Purpose. And Marty and I ran Havoc Journal for a number of years. It's mine now. And Epoch Times reached out to us through, through a mutual friend named Boone Cutler, who's also a vet, Iraq War vet, very well respected in the in the veteran community. And they and Epoch Times wanted to start featuring veteran focused content to tap into the veteran first responder community and allow us to share our stories with America. And that's how we got started. I'm very excited to be part of Battlefields. Why am I surprised that something like this has not been developed before? But we have had a lot of our blood and treasure spilled on foreign lands. That hasn't stopped. Uh, and so I, I'm just wondering, what was the real impetus? Was it something to, uh, where did it come from? A desire for people to know or for, from a desire of people to tell? I think it's a little bit of both. So part of the reason that there's not more that's going on in the country is a lot of vets are reluctant to tell their stories because they say, we say, hey, you know, this is something I did. It's my job. I don't want to call attention to myself. I don't want to put myself on a pedestal above my former, my fellow citizens. And I think what we're seeing now is as Iraq and Afghanistan are over, or at least on the back burner for now, because we'll probably have to go to both places again later, we're starting to see that veterans are more willing to come forward to share these stories. More time has passed, so they've had time 
to adjust to the reality of their shared experiences. But also we see that fewer and fewer veterans are out there that are able to convey these things to the next generation who are going to have to start over from zero because most of us will be out by the time there's another big war, hopefully. So we're seeing a lot of folks that are now willing to come forward and tell these stories, and we see a good appetite for people that want to hear them. And that's why when Epoch Times reached out to us through Boone Cutler and said, hey, will you do this? Can you run a project for us that features these stories? We were like, absolutely. And we've been in effect for a couple of months now. It's going really strong and looking forward to making it even better in the future. So are these actual interviews? Are they letters? Are they articles? Tell us how the presentation is made in the Epoch Times. What will you, what, sure. How will we be immersed? So right now we're seeing a lot of firsthand accounts from first responders and military veterans. And some people like Ayman Kafel, who's one of our big writers, has a little bit of both. So Ayman was, he immigrated to the, to the United States, joined the U.S. Army, served in Iraq, got medically discharged, is now a police officer in Massachusetts. So you're seeing firsthand accounts written by these veterans about their experiences on the front lines and on the home front here in the United States. That might be a short missive. It might be a long academic article. It might be a poem. But it's all content that's by and for veterans and first responders that all of America can relate to. Obviously, there's been a lot of change in the military and the attitude toward the military. When did you, what was your first experience when you when you signed up to go and serve your country? How old were you? Where were you? Where did you go? What was those, those first years like, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, no, no, no it's a great question. So my father was in the Army, and both my grandfather, several of my uncles, as well as my wife was in the Army for 10 years. So it was very natural for me to go into military service. I never really wanted to do anything else. So I went to college, joined the Army, of course, right when I graduated, commissioned into the military intelligence branch, but detailed in the infantry. So I spent the first four years in the 101st Airborne Division, and I got into it that way. It's kind of the family business. And I actually had some bad experiences at the beginning of my Army career prior to 9-11. I tried to get out twice and couldn't. And then post-9-11, couldn't get out because the war was going on and military intelligence was a shortage branch. And then I got into the special operations community, really found my niche, found my tribe, found my calling, and stayed in ever since. And eventually, I I got the opportunity to, to, to go to Yale, as you mentioned earlier, studied there for graduate studies, and came to teach at West Point which was new to me because I commissioned through the Reserve Officer Training Corps program. I went to Georgia Military College and Mercer University, which, of course, are are both in Georgia. But I think West Point's a special place, and I'm very grateful to be allowed to stick around in retirement and continue to try to serve in that capacity as well. Well, if we have time to get to some of the more current uh, things that are going on in the military that are not so positive, I would like like to get your take. But I do want to stay on this for another minute or so. Some of the articles, uh, for example, one which I think is cool, You Are Not a Mother, You Are a Soldier, by a female officer who talks about the complexities of juggling both a military career and being a mom. And the challenge is there. There's uh, one called A Deck of Many Things, Reflections on Colin Powell and Iraq 20 Years Later. Uh, another called Afghanistan Knocked Me Down, Faith Picked Me Up. Uh, those those sound like very interesting. Even if you're not in the military, even if you have never even considered being in the military, those are still, they sound like powerful, powerful essays and stories. Absolutely right. So one of the things that I love about the first article you mentioned about the, the dichotomy about being a soldier and a parent, that's something that so many people can relate to. You don't have to be in the military to relate to that fundamental tension between job and family. It is exacerbated in many ways by being in the military or being a first responder because you have this calling where people could literally die if you don't do your job. 
but anyone can relate to it. And another reason I like that article so much is I mentioned that veterans are reluctant to share their stories. I don't think there's any more group less willing to share or less motivated to share than female vets, unfortunately. And I talked to my own wife about this. As I mentioned, she served in 10 years, 10 years in the Army, so it was in a lot of the same units that I was in, the 101st, 2nd Infantry Division in JSOC. But she, like many other female vets, don't feel like they have something compelling to tell. But once we get them to put it down on paper, just like with this article, you can see it's, it is extremely well-written and thoughtful and relatable. So I was really proud of the author for writing that one. I'm glad we were able to feature it. Well, look, we're going to continue this discussion in just a moment. Charles Faint, Lieutenant Colonel serving in the Army, 27-year vet, and he's got some stories to tell, and we'll get two more of them in just a moment. You're listening to SpeakingOutAmerica.com. We're talking with Charles Faint, Lieutenant Colonel, retired from the United States Army, Armed Services veteran for 27 years serving this country. Uh, they are involved now with a project with the Epoch Times called Battlefields, allowing stories written by military veterans and first responders. And I know that, for, as I mentioned, even if you're not in the military, uh, you can't help but to be captivated by the stories of these people. But tell us uh, your story. You uh, were obviously honoring, honoring the anniversary 20 years since we've been in Iraq. You were there. Tell us your history, and what did you do in Iraq when you were there? Absolutely. So I have to back up just a little bit. When 9-11 happened when I was serving the Republic of Korea, and the outpouring of support from the Korean people was, was just immense. But I remember my, I was a company commander in the 2nd Infantry Division, and I remember the entire attitude of the entire division was the war is going to be over before we have a chance to get in it. Because if you remember, our reference points up to that point were Panama, Granada, First Gulf War, etc. So I left Korea. I went to some, some of my training in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which is where the big military intelligence stuff is for the Army. And then I was in another course at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, when we invaded Iraq. And I remember watching bombs over Baghdad falling when I was on a treadmill at that school. So I just knew that I, I was going to be the only kid on my block without a combat patch, and I wouldn't be able to get in it, which 20-plus you know, years later seems kind of silly, but that's what I thought <laughs> at the time. So finally, I finally got to Iraq in 2004 with the 5th Special Forces Group. I commanded the group Military Intelligence Detachment, and we were stationed at Balad. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me, especially the subsequent times I came back. I came back twice more when I was assigned to the Joint Special Operations Command later, I think, the last time I was there was, was 2008, 2009, so it was, it was pretty hot uh, fighting-wise during that time period. And with the benefit of hindsight and some reflection, I wrote the article you're talking about. What's interesting about that article, A Deck of Many Things, is I co-wrote it with my friend and Havoc Journal's editor, Mike Warnock. Mike and I have been best friends since eighth grade. He also served twice in Iraq, both in the Army and in the Air Force. And we both wrote about our respective perspectives on the war in Iraq. And the the name of Deck of Many Things alludes to a game called Dungeons and Dragons, which Mike and I used to play a lot when we were in junior high and high school. Yeah. And Deck of Many Things is kind of a grab bag of all the good and all the bad that can happen. And we went into Iraq with good intentions. And as I explained in the in the article, I had a kind of a moment of clarity when I was in a helicopter flying from Balad down to, to Baghdad to handle some business 
we really messed that country up in a number of different ways. And I don't think the country has recovered still. And I don't think our country has recovered from what's going to be a long trauma for the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So fun piece to write with my, with my co-author, people who like Dungeons and Dragons will find it relatable. People who served in Iraq will find it relatable. And I think people who didn't serve in Iraq, but are interested in the type of thing will find it interesting. You know, Colin Powell has mentioned in a number of articles that you provided as part of this interview. And of course, Colin Powell was the man who stood up before the United Nations and said, yep, weapons of mass destruction. And I don't know if he'll ever, what's the takeaway? What what is the lesson that we need to learn? So I, I never met Colin Powell. I don't have any strong feelings for him one way or the other, but having been in the military intelligence community and being a student of history, it's really easy to look back and say, well, this decision was bad. That decision was bad. I think based on the information that we had at the time that he made a reasonable determination on that, to think that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And as I explained in the article, Saddam Hussein was actively trying to make people think he had WMD to keep Iran away from him and to bully Saudi Arabia. And he assumed this is all people can look it up on the Internet. This is all open source that we would know that he didn't because we're American. We know everything. And of course we, we didn't. So I think, I think Colin Powell kind of gets a bad rap for making that call and, and doing what he did based on what we knew at the time. And I think that a reasonable person could have come to the same conclusion. Now, of course, looking back now, we know that curveball, the source was really unreliable. We know there were any number of other ways it reasons that we went into Iraq that didn't have to do with WMD that probably weren't the best. So I think now we know better, but back then maybe we didn't. And I think that's one of the things that's important to remember about it. It's easy to point fingers now about that and say, Hey, he made a bad call, but I think it was reasonable given what we knew. And you know what? It's hard to not like Colin Powell because he's just a man of, of great accomplishment and everybody likes him. And it was sad just to see how it all ended. But, uh, let me ask you about Afghanistan. What did we get wrong there? What was our what was our takeaway from your perspective? Yeah, Afghanistan was always going to be hard. I think in both Iraq and Afghanistan, we did it. We did a, did a couple of things that we got wrong at a very basic level. For one thing, we tried to impose nation building on a nation on a, on a people, especially in Afghanistan. They didn't really see themselves as a nation; they saw themselves as a tribal level. We tried to thrust Western-style democracy on them, and they didn't want it and couldn't support it. And that was bad. But the war in Afghanistan for almost the entire time was manufactured in Pakistan, which was our erstwhile ally. And we weren't getting after it in Pakistan for many reasons. I'm, I'm not necessarily casting stones about this. We didn't get after it in Pakistan to the degree that indicated that we were serious about winning in, Af- in Afghanistan. So in, Af- in Pakistan's restive west, the Fatah, the fairly administered tribal region, where we had groups like the Khani Network and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda just generating, regenerating, and continuing to attack, they could continue that forever. You're never going to win an insurgency if you don't get after the enemy sanctuaries. And we didn't do that in Pakistan. And the enemy sanctuary in Iraq was in Iran and Jordan and any number of other locations, and we didn't get after that either. So in the long run, we were never going to win either of those wars because we we weren't fighting the insurgency in the way that it needed to be fought. Also in Iraq, we made a, a couple of really big blunders that even at the time we, we knew, most of us knew that were bad ideas. Specifically, we 
engaged in debasification, which meant that anyone basically who knew how to keep the lights on in the city got fired because they're part of the Ba'ath Party, which you had to be in order to be part of the government in Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And we also disbanded the Iraqi army. And those two were colossal mistakes that had very long negative, long-term negative results on Iraq. So in both cases, trying to make those countries into little Americas when they weren't ready for it was, I think, the, the biggest mistake we made in both places. And of course, we really should finish, we should have finished our helping of Afghanistan before we tried to take a bite of Iraq. We didn't do that either. Tell us about the culture now. How has it changed in the last, say, five, 10 years for you? You're at West Point. You serve as the chair of the study of special operations of modern war. And tell us what the culture is like now compared to, say, five, 10 years ago. Sure. So I got to, I, I got to West Point in 2013. So I got there, I got there 10 years ago. I did a, a total of two tours. I did five years the first time, went to Hawaii for a couple of years, and then came back before I retired. I'm a big fan of West Point. As I was telling you before the show, I didn't go to school there. I went to Mercer University and Georgia Military College, and I came to West Point really late in my career. I was already Lieutenant Colonel by the time I started teaching here. And I think that this is a great school. I think it's producing a great product for America. Like we see elsewhere in America, there are cultural changes that affect West Point, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, in my opinion. But I wouldn't have stuck around after retirement if I didn't think that West Point in general and more importantly, the cadets who come here have something to offer America. So, yeah, the culture is changing. Yes, there are things I don't like, but I suspect anyone who's ever grown up to be 50 years old, which I am now, yeah. sees things they don't like and changes in the country. I think that we can get back on the right track eventually, and I want to be here for it. So I'm going to continue to serve at West Point as long as West Point will have me. So tell us, uh, the, the, the what would you call it, a column on the Epic Times? Uh, how would you describe Battlefields? It's just a collection of stories and an ongoing series. And where would they get to experience and read these letters? On the Epoch Times website, would that be right? Absolutely right. So if they go to the Epoch Times site, there's actually if they go to the masthead, in the bottom right corner, there's actually a link to Battlefields. Or they can go into their search browser, type in Battlefields Epoch Times, and it'll pop up. And it's not only just a collection of articles, stories, poems, and things about veterans and first responders. There's also a series of podcasts I think people will find interesting. So you've got a lot of community come on the podcast. I'm the host. We have some great guests, and I think your listeners will really enjoy it. All right. Once again, Battlefields. Charles Faint, thank you so much for not only coming on today, but for serving our country as well here on Speaking Out America. Mm-hmm. 